So, who was who was my mom to you? Karen was a special lady. She was funny. She was gentle. Karen to me was just you gravitated towards Karen. She just touched your heart and she was easygoing. She was just that kind of a person that you just loved from the moment I met her. She touched my heart and we remained friends forever, you know. Um, she had, she wore her heart on her sleeve. Yeah. yeah. She really did. And I'll love her forever till we meet again. <laughs> too much about my story maybe I'll bring you up to speed a little bit um, a lot of my listeners do um, but uh, I lived with my mom uh, she now she was much younger than yours uh, your mom had you late man she was uh she was my mom was 40 yeah uh, when she had me wow man yeah so my mom uh she was born in uh ooh, 56 58 man no, I can't. she was 64 um okay so yeah 56 uh so um i've told a couple of these stories i've told a few of these stories but i think that this is a good place to kind of paint the whole picture um and we'll do it briefly uh i don't know how much emotional energy i have for all of it right now um it's pretty fresh uh, but i also feel like it's important to get this out while it's fresh um because I, I know I'm losing a lot of uh, memories as I go. Um, so the, uh, my mom, <laughs> strangely enough, uh, my mom got breast cancer in uh, late fall of 2019, so just about a year and a half ago. Um, I found out through a Facebook post, uh, strangely. Um, I think it was from my sister. I'm going to apologize real quick. I'm going to get facts wrong uh, pretty much through this whole thing. Um, Everything sure. everything seems kind of a blur, so I'm gonna do my best. Uh, um, but she got breast cancer fall and fall of 2019, so just about a year and a half ago. I found out through a Facebook post. I think my sister created a page, um, and it was called like Grammy K's updates. Her name is Karen, and uh, um, I was invited to the page. She thought that my mom had told me. But I didn't. I mean, she didn't tell me. And so I found out there she had straight, uh, stage three breast cancer. Um, but it wasn't, uh, it hadn't metastasized um, and uh, it was localized. And so she went through chemo and then she had a mastectomy. Um, and she had six rounds. And by April, she was declared cancer free, uh, April of last year. And so COVID actually was pretty scary. You have somebody going through chemo. Um, stage three, uh, I mean, that's, if you want to talk like high risk, uh, um, that, that was almost more scary than the cancer was. Uh, um, but, uh, she, she was healthy through that in that capacity. Um, now I haven't had a relationship with my mom in 
a long, long time. Um, I lived with her when I was in high school, but it was tumultuous at best. Um, she didn't, this is my recollection. She didn't like me as a kid. She didn't like me as a person. Um, that's hard as a, as a kid growing up, especially like nine, 10, 11. Um, she knew who I was and didn't like me. And that taught me on early on that if you know me, you're not going to like me. So I'm not going to let anyone really know me. I'm going right. to kind of put a fake front. I'm going to put a facade there. And that was honestly, that was the person you met back in 2004 Yeah, was that guy, that the person that has to put the facade, because I actually had just moved out of my mom's house and down to Florida when you met, uh, like when we first met. Um, but that was it. Like my mom didn't like me. Why would anyone on the planet like me if the closest person didn't like me? And the, the, and the, and therefore I'm just, I have to protect myself. I have to protect myself from the hurt that that experience gave me. And so I built this massive fortress um, around my heart, around my emotions. I became this super logical person. I was just logical and everything was logic. It was either black or white, left or right. And it was super easy to make decisions because nothing really affected me. And I got, yeah. got married and, uh, you know, got divorced. Um, and a lot of that had to do with it and went through, a. um, after I got divorced in 2014, I went through this massive, uh, self-discovery about a lot of things, uh, a lot of unlearning, but a lot of that had to do with my mom and some of it reconciled, but the things that reconciled with my mom were, um, me allowing myself to forgive her, uh, regardless if there was an apology ever made, it was just me forgiving her. And I saw her in 2015 early on. Um, I was driving through the state and just happened to stop by. We uh, hung out for a little while um, and that was it, maybe just a couple of hours. And then in 2016, she actually came to my graduation at Michigan State University. And that was the last time I saw her. Um, you know, we would text maybe a couple of times a year. Um, I would try to give her a call on her birthday. Um, but that was the extent of our relationship. Um, and even during those calls, I, you know, she would make me feel bad. Like I would call and sure. then she would make me feel bad about not calling. And I was like, this doesn't make me want to call. Like yeah. I'm trying. <laughs> that's, the, that's the last thing. That's like, the last and, thing you want to hear. You're reaching out in vulnerability <laughs> and this person's like, you know, giving you more guilt trips. I You're know. like, oh, well, I guess the, the frequency of these calls, this was, you know. Like I was bad. I was bad at connecting with her. Yeah. But she was too. And um, I'm not going to speak on her mindset or her, uh, where she stood. I'm, I can only speak on mine. Um, but that, like, I, I honestly just kind of, uh, I processed so much of who she wasn't in my life to this point and unlearned so many things about who I thought I was when I was raised that I finally came to this point, you know, like I am enough. I am. I can be myself. I know you, Jason Maupin, will like me as a person if you know yeah. me and you know me fully, like even yeah. saying that, like right now it like, it's emotional for me because like, I am, I, I, I don't fully believe it. I don't, but I have right. to continue saying it. I have, because I like the, that feels like the lie. Well, when well, what you, what you vulnerability is strength. And you know, when you go through trauma 
as a, as a child, you, like you said, you put those walls up, man, that it's like, I'm not going to be hurt like this again. No. And I wasn't. Ne- yeah. And I'm never going to be put in a place where someone can hurt me again. Nope. And it, so, it so worked. That wall, yeah, it does. It, it works, worked. Man, but it, it puts us in a, in, in an unhealthy state though, because we stopped recognizing who the man in the mirror is oh yeah but like i i blocked out love i blocked out uh compassion empathy i mean i blocked out fear and i blocked out pain but i blocked out connection and so that i mean that's what i've been uh learning how is to tell myself that if you know me you will like me if you know me you can love me um and you're not going to hurt me like the person who is the closest that should have like my original, like my, my first love, um, that person shouldn't have like, you're not going to hurt me like they did. And, um, and so, uh, my mom, she got better and, uh, and honestly, I didn't, didn't connect with her a ton. I sent her some messages and, um, throughout, uh, 2020, um, and then we went through Christmas and then on February 6th of this year, um, she called my sister. Uh, I have five, four siblings. I'm one of five. Um, my older sister, Sarah and myself don't have much relationship with her, but my younger sister, Jessica and my older brother, Ben, they have a relationship with my mom. And, uh, my, my mom called my sister, Jessica, and told her that she had found a lump on the back of her head and went in, um, and this is where I'm apologize. I'm going to mess these facts up, but I'm going to do my best. Um, sure. she found a bump on the back of her head and she went in and they gave her a quick MRI and said that the bump was actually going through her skull and into her brain and that they need to do, um, uh, a PET scan or a biopsy to figure out, um, if the, if the cancer had returned, um, but she is Medicare. And she fell to the bottom of the priority list and, uh, two weeks turned into four weeks, turned into eight weeks and she was not treated and her symptoms started to, uh, rapidly and aggressively increase, um, pain in her flanks, uh, the, the local hospital in, in New Mexico, cause she moved down to New Mexico like a decade ago, um, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, uh, uh, the small hospital really couldn't uh, handle anything that was significant when it comes to testing, but they, they, they were like testing your kidneys and testing all these things. And it was coming back positive. And I'm like, I know that I'm not um, a doctor or an oncologist by any capacity, but I do know I, I can kind of put pieces together. Like she's had cancer before <coughs> she's had cancer before. And, and when it comes back, typically it's not, that's not a great thing. I mean, just typically. And now she's having flank pain in the areas of her kidneys, but her kidneys are coming back healthy. Like I'm doing the math in my head. I'm, she has a bump on her head that's going into her brain and her kidneys and her, her whole flanks are hurting. I mean, this is, I mean, and, and this is my uneducated brain saying there's something going on with her spine, with her, with her yeah. nervous system because you don't have pain in those areas without either something local happening or something with the spine. 
And uh, then a, a week later, so we were looking at nine weeks after she had found the bump and she's in sleeping and, you know, 20 hours a day. She's barely up. She's heavily medicated. Um, uh, nine weeks later, she uh, gets really dizzy and it's hard, hard for her to breathe. And she goes into the hospital and her lungs are filling with fluid. And um, they send her uh, immediately. They medevac her from New Mexico and into Lubbock, Texas, uh, via helicopter. And uh, immediately they drain her lungs. They uh, drained a liter of fluid from her lungs when they got there. And then the next morning, two more liters. So nearly a gallon in 24 hours from her lungs. Um, and at that point, they sent it off for testing to see if it was... Uh, was cancerous fluid and they were able to manage her pain a little bit better there. And by that time, um, the oncologist finally agreed to see her because the fluid came back, uh, testing positive for cancer. So then they're like, okay, now we can test you for cancer. Like it took nearly 10 weeks for them to finally say, okay, we'll test you. And, um, I did test my, I did text my mom. I sent her a message a couple of weeks before that happened. Um, I, I could see, I know that my sisters were being very optimistic, but I could, I, I mean, like, I don't want to be the, the, I want to say I was realistic and I, I see, I saw what was happening. I was watching her health decline and, um, I sent her a text and I was like, mom, I'd love to come visit you. Um, if you're, you know, if you'd be up for a short one hour visit, uh, maybe this upcoming weekend, I'd love to fly down and just see you briefly. And she responded and said, please don't come and see me. Um, I, that would, that ups, that would upset me a lot. Um, and, uh, and, and it was hard to read at first, but I think for her, she was in denial about what was happening and a visit from somebody who doesn't have a relationship with her for her meant death. And right. I get that. I understand that. Um, that was hard. That was hard to see and read um, because I love my mom. And I love, uh, despite, despite our story, despite our message, I love my mom. And um, Absolutely. That's the person that... <laughs> you know it carried you for nine months man and it's, <laughs> and it's hard me. yeah um and uh and so she she went on and to lubbock texas and uh she went into the critical care unit there and uh by the time the oncologist came and gave um the examination uh they found out she had um cancer in her brain and in her spine and in her shoulders and in her lungs and a, a bunch of other places in her body and almost immediately, the oncologist uh, wrote her off as untreatable and uh, pretty much just said, you need to make her um, comfortable. And we're looking oh. at 10 weeks uh, since uh, the start of the whole thing. Um, um, sorry. Um, oh, man. Take your time. Uh, she started to lose her mind a little bit. She was texting my older sister, Sarah, who didn't have much of a relationship with her. Like the FBI is or You need to call the FBI. The people here are trying to kill me and stuff like this. And, um, sure. That was really tough because it was the beginning, the onset of watching her brain uh, start to go. I mean, like you got to think the body knows the brain knows 
when uh, these things are happening. I mean, on a, on a subconscious level, it knows and it starts to shut down the parts that are non-essential in order to uh, concentrate the energy into keeping you alive, to breathing and to blood pressure regulation and to temperature regulation. And so you, you begin to lose yourself because you, you don't need the neocortex. The, you don't need the front of your brain where your character lives. You don't need that. You need to breathe and you need to eat and you need mm-hmm. like the the most basic functions of human and so you begin to lose your brain you begin to lose your mind and who you are and you can't critically think and your memory goes and uh she she was uh very paranoid and kind of in a fugue state and uh my dad at this point uh realized uh how serious the situation is and he lives up here in Michigan he's lived in lives in Kalamazoo and um They've been divorced for about 25 years. Um, uh, they divorced when I was like, uh, it, was, it was the August before I was going into my freshman year of high school. They got a divorce. And so we're, I mean, to, like 25 years ago nearly. Um, or maybe it was 20 years ago. It's hard to hard to tell. Uh, 97, so you do the math. You know, 24 years. And um, he uh, said, he's like, I, I couldn't live with myself if she dies alone. I, I can't do that. And, uh, and so he packed wow. up his car and drove down. Uh, and while he was driving down, they moved her to a facility, um, a hospice p- f- a facility, a nursing facility. And uh, when he got there, um, the nurses said that her entire demeanor changed. Everything changed. Um, she went from... Uh, kind of paranoid and panicked to complete peace. And uh, she was so incredibly thankful that he had arrived. I'm not sure if she fully understood the situation, if she fully understood her condition, um, but she knew who he was. And um, when I was talking to my dad about it, because he was able to call me, there was a small, I mean, I think he was with her from maybe like nine or 10 in the morning until about four or five in the afternoon. And he was able to call me that evening or one of the evenings he called me and I was just like, dad, I, it's the most selfless and beautiful thing I've ever seen is this. I mean, like I've, I can't imagine, you know, like some, and he goes, this is what love requires. This is what love required of, of me. And I mean, like I've, I love my dad. I, I love him. And I know that if I have kids one day, I'll model how to love my kids after him. But this is a whole new level of selflessness, of, of love, of just showing up. And, um, he showed up on a Sunday night, um, and then Monday morning and he was able to spend, um, about 11 days with her, um, and she passed so he was able to spend that week and then the following week and then she she passed on thursday night or friday morning the 23rd um of april and uh she just slowly i mean like she was awake less and less each day and she was eating less and less and um about wednesday she just stopped eating and that was when the nurses were like this this is like the last thing that happens and then she passed a couple of days later. Um, wow. And um, I'm so incredibly thankful that he um, he was there. I am couldn't be more proud as a son 
to see that, to watch that happen. Um, and uh, th- that was just over two weeks ago. And uh, he just got back. Uh, he came back on Saturday, actually. And then Sunday was Mother's Day. And he had this yeah. big car full, huge, massive car full of of pictures more than anything else. My mom had thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures, like more than we could ever go through, like realistically, more than we could ever go through. Right. And um, and my dad so why was do you, like- Why do you think- if I get if yeah. I ask you yeah, this, yeah. why why do you think that I mean you said you have four siblings than you, so five kids your mom had. It sounds like the two or three even of your siblings had a relationship with your mom. Two did. Why did yeah. they oh two? So why did and did they end up having a relationship with your mom and you didn't? It's kind of a personal question. Yeah, it's, you don't it's have to answer it's a, that, but it's a complex question. And I mean, realistically, it probably um has to do with uh, re- religion. And I, I hate saying that, but she was deeply, deeply religious. And I've gone through a faith uh, transformation in, in ways. Um, you know, I fell completely out of faith uh, in early 2014 and was like an atheist for a while. And then I was a nurse, uh, not a narcissist. I was um, agnostic. Uh, well, yeah, I was, um, It if you don't, if you don't think anything exists, nihilism. I was a nihilist uh, okay. for a while. Like nothing matters because nothing exists beyond us. Um, and then I was like a pantheist and I kind of went through this, but it wasn't, I didn't hold them too tightly because I knew I was wrong. So I was just like, sure. what fits for right now? And I'm kind of, in a sense, coming back to a different kind of faith myself. Um, one sure. to where I can, you know, cuss and I feel like God will still love me. You know, it's it's weird. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's I, the, I mean, God's grace is so big. And, you know, that's the thing, man, is, I think so many people, uh, you know, religion has been used to manipulate and spiritual abuse has happened even in the Catholic, sexual abuse, you, you name yeah. it, the abuse has happened in the Catholic Church and other denominations for thousands of years, you know? Yeah. And that's such the enemy. The enemy will take something that is good and twist it just enough to hurt and damage and what people don't realize is people are flawed individuals and they're going to let you down people are going to let you down they're not god <laughs> yeah. so the world has this skewed view of religion and of god because they've been hurt by the church or hurt by a pastor or hurt by something and they equate that with god and it has nothing to do with god you know it has nothing to do with his characteristics um i think sometimes we worship the the man, the person behind the pulpit more than we do the God, you know? And so um, that conquest that you were on to find that relationship with Christ, um, he's not threatened by that. <laughs> you know, God created it. I, know, I, I think if he's not threatened by that. Yeah, I think I probably, I, I would think it's safe to say that, you know, the, especially the audience uh, that this has, I it, it would probably be safe to say that if there is a God, and I do believe that, that he cares more about God cares more about me than he does the things that come out of my mouth. And so, right. um, and so I, I kind of sit with a, a few different thoughts and beliefs with that, but you know, even that is, is, is a swirling, twirling 
shifting viewpoint that I, I have yet to land on something that is an absolute besides a couple of things that this podcast was not made for um, today. <laughs> uh, that sure. We, maybe we'll talk about that, uh, that sure. fun journey yeah. in another one. Um, but I, my mom with me specifically is I, I, this is just what I believe. I, it's hard for me to project that. Um, but I'm, or no, with my sister, it would be, uh, deeply, uh, for like me and my sister, she, we definitely don't fit the mold of the good Christian kid. Uh, my brother Ben does, he is fundamental, um, deeply fundamental, uh, Christian. Right. And, right. um, and Ben's always been my favorite or, but Ben's always been my mom's favorite. Um, it was, according to me now, if you were to ask my sister, she would say differently, but, um, right. uh, but, uh, now my younger sister, Jessica, uh, is kind of in the same boat as I am. Uh, it kind of fell away from the church, but she has a daughter. And so my mom was in her life because my mom was a grandma and sure. that's why she had a relationship with her. Um, so me and Sarah didn't have anything to offer in a sense. Um, we don't have religion and we don't have kids. And so therefore it doesn't fit the mold of, um, who she expected us to be. That hurts because it's rejection, you know, it's rejection by a person that should be nurturing, should be caring, should, should love you despite your differences despite anything, man. And so you're grieving almost two different things here. You're grieving <laughs> the lack of relationship that you had with your mom. And then you're grieving the death of your mom. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, uh, when my dad got back, he's, he's like, Hey, I think we're going to meet on Sunday on mother's day. And I was like, I, I think that's appropriate. So me and my sister, Sarah and Jessica and my dad got together. Um, my brother Ben lives in uh, Hawaii, and my sister, my other sister, is estranged, um, and so it was just the four of us. And we decided to uh, first thing we did was go through um, uh, and have snacks, and we ate the snacks that my mom used to like. Nice, um, nice. And uh, whew, that was harder than I anticipated it to be. My anxiety was high, and I didn't, sure. I didn't show that honestly. Um, I, I kept it together, but honestly, I was really hard for me to do that. Um, I actually went into the bathroom at one point and had like a real small mini breakdown. And I was like, this is just my family. Well, like what is going on? But there's probably a lot of stuff going on. Um, oh yeah. And then we went, we decided to go through the, uh, a lot of the pictures like, Hey, let's just go through. And I mean, she had thousands and thousands that she kept. I mean, she kept everything like my, my family in 1987 moved or maybe it was a little later, but, uh, moved, no, it was 87 or 88 moved from Michigan to California, old school style. Me and my brother, Ben rode in the U-Haul with my dad and drove across the country with a map, you know, like, and she kept the, she kept the receipt for the U-Haul and she, you know, the plane tickets for the kids. She kept everything, every single thing. Wow. And yep. um, all the way through. Um, and, you know, we, we found some weird things in there. You know, people are weird, but, it, you know, that's okay. Um, but uh, I, I found a, a letter from my mom and I was the one who found it. All of us were going through. Um, here it is. And it's actually a copy of a letter. 
Um, I don't even know where the original is, but it's a letter to me on my birthday um, in wow. 2001. And I, I don't know if I didn't get it or if I forgot it or if I read it and threw it away. I'm not sure. So you were 19, 18, 19. I was 19. I turned 19. Um, and I'm reading it now and I'm like, man, this is what I wanted my mom to tell me my whole life. Yeah. And here she was telling me and I never heard her. Yeah. It says, even though you are a grown man now, and I'm very proud of you, here are some things that you need. uh, Here's some thoughts you need to keep. And the first one is never forget that I love you. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. And it says a bunch of other stuff. I never thought my mom was proud of me. And I never, I mean, I knew she loved me, but I never knew she loved me. Yeah. And I found the letter and I read the first like sentence and I'm like, nope, not ready. And just closed it up and put it in the little pile of stuff that I was going to take home. Yeah. And that, and that's, that's fine. That's fine, dude. Everybody's got to process that on a different level. Um, You know, it's strange how grief works, man, but it, it comes in waves. It really does. It comes in waves. And yeah. we just we just got to be faithful to stand our ground when that wave hits and allow it to allow it to crash and and then we work through the next wave when it comes. I think I think the biggest question I wanted to talk to you and ask you about is how do you process the death of somebody that you never had a relationship with but you have an eternal connection with? She didn't know how to be a mom. Her mom was terrible to her. Her mom was terrible to her, and she didn't. She didn't know how to be a mom. Exactly. So, you, you know, and you're processing that. And for me, it was different. It's different because, man, I my I there's a fine line between genius and crazy. <laughs> and my my dad, my dad rode that line. My dad was a very smart man. He was an environmental environmental engineer he uh helped clean up he was the key person to help clean up the exxon valdez oil spill in alaska (laughs) when it back in 90 something or whenever it happened and uh he came up with that method of putting sawdust out there and then them coming the sawdust soaks up the oil and then they come with nets and they skim it up so a very smart individual but he never he came from a very poor family so he had to have a lot of things and those things required a lot of maintenance and that maintenance required a lot of stress and those stress that stress man he took out on us and um there is no relationship there between him and i because you know there's been so much past abuse that he will not recognize. There's a there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness yeah. takes one person. I can I have forgiven my father. I have let that stuff go yeah. because I realize if I don't forgive, then I take that baggage with me. That bitterness, it, that unforgiveness turns to bitterness. That bitterness eventually turns to malicious acts, and you and I end up taking it out on my kids, which is why you have the generational curses, right? Yeah. That, that come. So it was very important for me to walk through those fires, those storms, those, 
those times where I had to deal with my baggage, my past, the brokenness, the trauma, because I wanted to be the father to my kids and the husband to my wife that my dad never was yeah. and that he wasn't man enough to do. So for me, you know, I, I have never reconciled with my father because it takes two to reconcile that he doesn't think he's wrong. He wasn't, he doesn't think that, you know, I brought up certain instances, instances to him that happened as a kid. And, and I said, why, you know, and he, I don't, I did never did that. It was like total complete denial where to, where I was like, wow, this guy, I really think he's crazy, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so, so there's a difference there, but you're grieving. There's two, like I said, you're grieving two different things. You're grieving the relationship you never had with your mom. Yeah. And, and wanted, and now you're grieving the loss of your mom that you'll never be able to get back to, you know, restore that relationship. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, it's tough, man. I mean, there's in grief, they, they talk about the, the five stages of grief and I think it was 1969, Elizabeth, Kubler Ross. She was a Swiss American psychiatrist. She introduced the five stages of grief in a book called On Death and Dying. Um, but then they later on added like two more stages of grief because it's always evolving. So yeah. now it's seven stages of grief. So you first go through shock and denial. And that initial stage of grief, that shock and denial is typically the stage when emotions are most profound. You know, the fact that you have experienced a loss it may be evident, but you may still have underlying feelings of shock or disbelief. Like, I cannot believe this person is gone out of my life. You know, it's it's strange you say that because um, I'm I'm not an angry person. Uh, I mean, you've, yeah. you've known me for a long time. I'm not. I'm no. I'm not yeah. somebody who yells probably ever. Um, I I mean, I've never seen you yell. <laughs> I've never heard you yell. <laughs> and, you've always managed your. That's what I'm saying. You've always managed I, your emotions pretty well. I do. But that goes back to keeping people at a distance. Sure, right? it, like, sure it does. And the night, so I'm remodeling my house right now, and uh, the 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 night that my mom passed, she passed uh, early in the morning, and that night I was. Um, installing a microwave in my kitchen, a brand new one. And it was the ones where you, they mount to the wall over the, um, the stove they're mounted over the stove. So that it looks like they're kind of hanging. Um, and I've never done it before, but I'm like, I, I can do that, you know? And so I'm, they, there's this track and it's like the silver track that, that you have to, you have to bolt that thing, anchor it to the wall into the, like into the studs with big lag bolts. And so I'm, they give you this template and they're like, line this up with the studs. And I'm, I'm, I'm holding it on to the wall and I, I use my stud finder and I, I, I mark one and mark two and I mark the third stud and I, and I, I get over to the third stud and my lag belt goes chunk, right into the wall. And I'm like, son of a, and I'm like, <laughs> I missed the stud. And I'm like, that's fine. It happens. Yep, yep, so then I'm yep. using the screw. I'm using the drill and I'm literally like, where is this stupid where is this? And I have this line of 15 holes that are a quarter inch apart from each other all the way trying to find this stupid, stupid stud. And I literally rip the thing off the wall and I yell and throw it across the room as hard as I could. And I have <laughs> never done that yeah. in my life. Yep. I've never screamed. And I literally screamed as loud as I could. And then I stopped Good. and I was like, maybe this isn't the studs. 
Yeah. Maybe, well, it's, maybe it's there's other things going though. on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and that's the thing, man. Like, uh, those emotions, we can almost feel emotionally numb in those times, man. We have difficulty sleeping during that shock and denial. We have decreased appetite, heart palpitations, anger, like you just said, you know. Um, but it, it's all normal, man. And, and I and and feeling those those things, I, I, I a quick story going through that this past year it was tough, obviously, because after the the shock and denial, you go through pain and guilt. Um, you know, you have anger and bargaining, you have depression, reflection, and loneliness. I know that these aren't which, linear either. You can go, you can bounce yeah, exactly. all around. You bounce all, you do. You feel schizophrenic at times. Yeah. You You're like, man, I, I remember my mom first passed. I, I found myself driving over to her, her residence during the day. And I'm like, what am I doing? I, I, I was in the parking lot. Oh, like going to see her? Going to see her. <sighs> I was going to see her. And it was just natural huh. instinct of like, I got to go check on my mom, you know, because for as long as I can remember, I was always my mom's protector. Mm. Growing up as a kid, I, as young as seven years old, I remember my dad just totally demeaning, berating my mom as he constantly did. I'm, we're in our beds, my brother and I, and my dad's calling my mom a bitch. He's calling her a whore. He's, Jeez. I mean, he's just, I mean, it was, it was just constant mental verbal abuse and my mom never fought back she just and it made me so angry and i remember and he's like do you want me to leave just tell me to leave and i and and you got to remember we're living in a home that in paradise valley it's a two million dollar home at the time scottsdale arizona paradise valley is basically the beverly hills of california You know, it, you know, it was a nice home, but it's huge. And they're in the living room and our bedrooms are clear across probably a hundred yards away. Jeez. And, and, you know, you know, more like probably 50, 60, 60 yards, but I'm hearing him screaming at her, yelling at her, you know, and I, I got up and ran to the living room and I said, mom, you, you tell him to get his house out right now. Seven years old. I said, you pack your shit and you get out. You know, I was so angry yeah. man, as a seven-year-old kid. Yeah. And I I knew I was going to take a beating for that. <laughs> and I I did. I took a beating for it, man. But at least he wasn't beating on my mom. Yeah. At least he wasn't. He, at least he was. At least the abuse wasn't on her anymore. Yeah. I would take, I took it. I was like, okay, I'll take it all, all you want, you know. But don't. So I remember as young as seven years old, being my mom's protector growing up, same thing, you know, once my brother and he ended up being going in, getting addicted to methamphetamines and became the abuser and, you know, him protecting her from him, you know, and constantly I was her protector. Constantly I was her, you know, it felt like just, yeah, just that protector. So I found myself, man, driving over there and needing to, I was like, I got to check on my mom. Then I'm like, get over there. And I'm like, Wow she's not here you Man. know and so it sets in you know those 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 moments set in of that guilt yeah and that pain and all those states that you feel and i ended up having this you know moment with my family we ended up going to puerto rico and it's it was this past march 
And, you know, kids can pick up on this grief. They can pick up on, you know, I have a nine-year-old, seven-year-old, four-year-old, very, just, just great kids, man. I, I couldn't be, I couldn't be more blessed with the, the kids I have. Just, just so caring, loving, gentle, kind. Um, and they pick up on when you're hurting. Yeah. And I remember my four-year-old, my son, <laughs> Man, the story, it, it, telling it, uh, speaking it out loud is different than writing it because I, I wrote a little blog on it. But um, it's it's tough, man, because we're out there. And I, I grew up in Arizona for most of my life. And, you know, I grew up going to San Diego. And if you've never seen the Pacific Ocean, it's, it's a sight to behold, man. It's, it's so beautiful. It is. You have the ocean. It's just these waves are massive. You know, six, eight-foot waves just crashing down. And I remember being out there as a kid and you learn to dive deep underneath that wave. Cause if you don't, you're going to get spiked down to the bottom and yeah. go through the wash. I almost, yeah. I almost paid for it with my life several times getting, you know, caught up in a rip current once as a kid and coughing up seawater for several, several days after that. And then once when I was in college, Thomas Lynn, remember Thomas Lynn? Oh yeah. I'm I'm with Thomas Lynn in El Salvador, and we got caught out there in a rip current, and those waves were massive, and that was the best shape I was ever in my life. And Thomas was in great shape, and we we got to the shore, and literally just laid down because we were just like, oh man, we almost we could have died out there, yeah. you know. So if you're not careful and you don't know what you're doing, those waves will just kick your butt all over the place. And I. I was out there with my son who's four years old and we're playing. And when I'm on vacation, I turn off my phone. I get off of social media. My life is not anybody else's except my family's. Cause I, I share my, that's my job. You know, I, I do motivational speaking. I speak in schools. I speak in prisons. I speak in festivals, whatever. I do my podcast, speak about mental health issues. And I share a lot of my, my family allows me to share a lot of my personal stories of my life with everybody. So when I go on vacation, I'm, I'm theirs and, and I try to get away from everything else. And I was given full attention to everybody and my kids and playing with them in the ocean and teaching them these things that, that I had to learn the hard way. And I remember Phoenix, who's like I said, four years old, such a powerful moment looking at me grabs me by the cheeks looks at me in the eye says daddy when grandma passed it felt like you got lost in the forest and i was never gonna find you again jeez and i was just like oh man i broke down and i was like dude you don't know how much that speaks to me man i said i did i said i i did get lost in the forest i said but your love it found me it found me man and um <laughs> And that's, that's what I say to people, man. When you're going through grief, you got to let love find you because it's the only thing that will heal you. It'll, it's the only thing that will heal you through that. When you can get to the point where you can read that letter and realize that your mother, that first line, if you can never get past that first line, it's fine because it says it all in that first line. Yeah. I love you. And you got to let that love find you. And when it does, it'll heal you, you know. And, um, and then you got to accept it because that's the hard part is accepting it. Sometimes loving, giving love is easier than even accepting it. No, we, it's we, we have much easier. You got to accept it. Yeah. Especially as an eight. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude. 
<laughs> I'm there with you, man, because, yeah, the Enneagram 8s, you know, people that know the Enneagrams. I'm good at love, um, man. I'm real good at love. I'm yep, real yep. bad at letting somebody love me. Oh, absolutely. And man. that's why. We, we, you know, and, and, and there's reasons for that because we've been hurt in the past and we're like, I'm never going to be in that spot again where I'm not in control Yeah, of, of those things. But when you're going through grief, man, it's... It's hard to be in control, you know, <laughs> of your emotions. <laughs> you know, like yesterday for Mother's Day, as you know, my wife, she's a worship leader at her church. And, and my, I'm biased, of course, but has a voice like an angel and does a great job, man, there at leading. And so she has me help every now and then. And, you know, my mom never got to hear me sing um, or even speak in a professional setting, you know. And I always regretted that just like, cause I was, I always knew my mom was proud of me. I never doubted that. My mom was a saint growing up, man. Just like, like one time spent, spent, spent over an hour writing down lyrics to the Billy Joel song, Lullaby. You ever heard that song? Oh yeah. Yeah. I love that song. Good night, my angel. Now it's time to sleep. Yeah. She wrote that down, man. And she wrote it down verbatim cause she wanted me to sing it. And I, and so, but she's always that caring, nurturing mom. And, but she never got to see me speak in a professional setting or hear me sing in a professional setting. And um, so I kind of regretted that. But yesterday, it was a tough day. But man, it sounds, you're going to think I'm completely crazy. But I'm standing up on stage and serve, the countdown clock is, um, is finished. I'm entering the service. And right then I feel someone grab my left elbow. <laughs> I can't explain it, man. But I turned around and no one was there. Like the piano player was behind me sitting down, but he was too far. I'm like what in the world? I mean, it felt like someone just put their arm within mine hmm. and just grabbed, grabbed it, you know? Hmm. And, um, I just, I thought it. I felt it was my mom. Yeah, I, I was like, man, like I was like, she's here, she's here with me right now, and um, dude, that was a cool moment. Yeah, because I was like, and I was so happy, man. I was so overjoyed. Because I felt her presence right there with me, man. And I believe that she, she was there with me, man. I really do. Uh, but, yeah, just such a cool moment where I was just like, man, she she, she always would say that, too. She's like, I'm, I'm, I'll never leave you. I'll never leave you. I'll hmm. be with you. And hmm. um, even down, she got to her, her dying days, man. Like, I don't know if you've ever experienced someone passing but it's not very kind it's no. it's not it's not very um yeah it's just the best word in common but not very kind it's you know they start doing what's called the death rattle yeah and you know their body shutting down and it it's the worst noise i can ever describe 
but their every breath is just like it sounds like they're choking they're not the doctors assure you that they're not suffering that they're fine and they're heavily medicated obviously and like almost a coma type state but it's when you start hearing that death rattle it's about an hour 35 mm. minutes to an hour before they pass huh. and um even before before she stopped before she stopped breathing before she started doing the death rattle she the one thing she never stopped saying was i love you jason hmm. you no matter how b bad her mind got i love you jason i love you and um i'm here with, I, I just kept telling you i'm here with you mama you know i come from you know, my mom's from arkansas originally and i grew up calling my mom mama and um i call man, her but, mama too yeah yeah and so i just man once they start doing that death rattle and then and then they it's not long before they pass man and uh, before, right before she passed, her legs were just like, looked like she was running, man. She's laying in bed, but it looked like she was running. <laughs> and I was like, man, she's up there on those streets of gold, seeing her relatives right now, transferring over into that life. And I guarantee you she's running up there, you know, and having the time of her life. And man, those hospice people, God bless them. They're just so kind. They like They're did my so mom's kind. Hair. They are. They did. They did my mom's hair. They they um, you know, did her nails for her. You know, they came in and I, I when she passes, they draped this Afghan blanket over her. It's some kind of nonprofit ministry that's out there that makes these blankets for people and loved ones. And but man, that just meant the world to me. I was like, here's these complete strangers, yeah. loving and caring for my mother. And they don't have to do that, nope. you know, but they, they chose to do that and they, they just sat there. And so, yeah, they, uh, I, I came across an email the other day and someone forwarded it to me and this email, <laughs> they said they surveyed a bunch of five-year-olds on what love is, <laughs> you know, and you know, these five-year-olds are coming up with these funny answers and stuff and, um, you know, love is when mommy, you know, gets daddy a cup of coffee in the morning or, you know, love is this, you know, whatever. And, but the one that won was this five-year-old boy who they asked him what love was. He, and he went, he told a story about how his next door neighbor had just lost his wife. This guy's in his eighties. And he went over there and he sat on the man's lap and his family, his mom and dad are watching him. He just went over there and he climbs up on this old man's lap in his rocking chair and he's just rocking, sitting on this old man's lap. For about ten minutes, he comes back to his parents and they look at the kid and they say, "What'd you What'd you say to him?" And he said, "Nothing. I just helped him cry." Jeez. And that's what life is about, really. Yeah. It's about. We think we always got to come up with the right thing to say. No, I feel like that's what this podcast is today. I right, feel like, yeah. I feel like you're just helping me cry. And that's what it is. It's all about just being there for your your brother, being there for your sister, being there for your friend, whatever, and just helping them cry, working through it. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with it. You know, it feels for, like you said, us eights, man, it's, it's hard for me, man. I remember being a young kid and my dad, I remember crying and my dad saying, let me see those tears. 
And um, so you, I learned at a young age not to show vulnerability and hide my feelings. And then I realized that if I didn't want to become like the person that hurt me, I needed to be the opposite of that and, and relearn a lot of things, you yeah. know? So learn and relearn. Vulnerability strength. So you got you just got to be faithful to the process of that and say okay I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna step up to the plate here I'm gonna deal with these emotions as they come and one day you can be completely fine that's the thing about grief one day you'll be completely fine on top of the world next day you'll hear a song that reminds you of your your loved one or, or and and you'll just be a wreck man or drilling <laughs> a hole in a wall like you did yeah well it's it's funny because like I I have these great really great friends that'll reach out and be like, Hey, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm okay. And they're like, yeah. no, it's okay to not be okay. I'm like, Oh no, I have those moments yeah. right now. I'm okay. And then right. I'll be taking a shower. I'll be sitting in my hot tub and I look up and I see a satellite going across the sky ever so slightly. And all of a sudden it just ruins me for whatever reason. And then I'm, <laughs> and then I'm weeping for five minutes and then I'm okay again. And then yep. just letting those, be exactly what they are when they come and that's the wave yeah that's the wave of grief sometimes it feels like i'm drowning but i'm okay yeah you're gonna be okay man yeah because you're gonna work through it you've always been a person i've known you what geez for like 15 years now or more yeah it's not 17 18 wow so and my wife's known you longer than that (laughs) because you guys grew up together yeah yeah but you've always been a person that attacked your, you know, worked through these these problems. And, you know, I, I you have two, what, two master's degrees right now. You're working on a doctorate. Like, you've been in the Coast Guard. You've lived in Alaska. Like, I mean, I'm always wondering. I'm like, man, what's Mark up to today? Because I know it's going to be exciting. <laughs> I know it's going to be different. I know it's going to be exciting. You live life to the fullest. And you've always never, you've never been afraid to step up to the challenge. And that's Mark Short. And Mark Short's going to work through this, too. Appreciate you, buddy. Absolutely, man. What's one thing that you're thankful for when it comes to my mom in your life? She just she just brought a lot of joy. She was just she loved to dance, swim, have fun. I remember just riding in my car with the windows down and she was just loving the air blow through her hair. It's just who she was and I just see the joy of like a little girl in her. She just, she loved me right away, welcomed me into the family, and yeah, she'll be greatly missed. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Mark. <laughs> it's good to see you. Good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I did want to say, uh, uh, ha- happy Father's Day, Daddy. Oh, thank you. Thank um, I don't know if I've ever told you this story. Um, one of my very first stories that I can remember of you, um, 
as a kid because like um anyone that knows me knows how important you are in my life um and i talk pretty highly of you and um i always i always mention um if i ever have kids i would model how to love my kids after how you loved us which has been uh, completely selfless um and uh i can remember when i was man I must have been three or four. It was, I mean, this is back on Porter Street in East Lansing. Um, we were in the backyard and you had a baseball. And I remember you would, you'd turn and you'd throw it directly like into the air as high as you could. And I remember thinking that that baseball is touching the clouds. Like it, it would disappear. And like, it was complete awe for me. I was like, this is the craziest thing I have ever seen. I couldn't believe how high that baseball went. And, um, that's for some reason, the memory that sticks in my mind of when I knew that, I mean, like I've called you my hero, somebody that I look up to for my entire life. And for some reason, that's the memory that sticks with me is, is my dad who (laughs) somehow does the impossible, who somehow is, is, is my hero. And so, uh, I love you, daddy. Well, uh, words, words are inadequate sometimes. And, and the words to describe uh, the amount that, of love that I've tried to express, uh, it doesn't, they don't exist for me. And I remember talking recently to uh, Aliana and it just occurred to me that I love this girl without measure. I can't measure how much I love her. Yeah. I love her. And that's because that's, that's true with you and your siblings and the grandkids. Uh, for whatever reason, and I'm grateful, but God gave me the ability to love without measure. Yeah. And that's been my goal. It's been your life. And it's very clear and apparent. Well, thanks. I uh, feel woefully inadequate (laughs) often in that quest. But I'll go down swinging on it. (laughs) Um, I I can remember when we were kids uh, on Porter Street, you... (laughs) You like made it your life mission to make so many things for us kids. I remember the um, the ice skating rink that you'd built built off to the side um, of the house. You, it was just like what two by twelves and some visqueen and yeah, it was uh, two by twelves. And I because I, I had visqueen and two by twelves because of my job. <laughs> Uh, so there I was uh, using my concrete skills uh, <laughs> in the middle of the winter, the, uh, middle of the winter uh, in Michigan, just right. filled a two by 12 box with visqueen and with water, let it freeze. And that was, I mean, I can't, we skated on that thing every day. Yeah. Well, you know, to me it was, and I get again, just 
who I was. I I wanted to do those things because I thought I thought it sounded like fun. <laughs> I thought it, I thought, man, I want to. I mean, you kids were the have been and still are my favorite people. Hmm. And the idea for me was there was nothing more pleasing to me than to think of something fun to do with you guys. Yeah. I I would rather. I mean, if I could have the days back, the weekends that we used to, whether it was the trek out to the the Pacific Ocean when we lived in California or the Redwoods uh, or when we lived in Michigan and we made our treks to the woods as we prepared for the yearly deer hunts yeah. uh, or the fishing trips. Yeah. Um Having fun. That yeah. was the goal. Yeah. Having fun with people that I love to be with. Yeah. What and, was uh, what was like life or what was life like um, in the early days, like back on Porter? Because um, I know that, like, well, actually, <laughs> let's take it all the way back. Like, how did how did you and mom meet initially? Uh, we met through um, um, just. Uh, mutual friends, uh, Dave Bowker, which you've heard his name forever. We actually, uh, he was at the, he was at the gathering, yeah, right? He yeah. was at the gathering. Uh, I knew him, uh, f- because he was friends with my next door neighbor. And, and so then I met him and we were all in high school together and just, uh, and then, Dave Bowker was actually set up with a blind date with your mom. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> and they went out on a blind date. And on the blind date, she invited him to a uh, church service. But it was not a normal church service. It was a like a Tuesday night uh, group. Uh so he went to that, and then he invited a couple other of my friends. And before it, eventually, I got invited, and that's and that group was the group that mom had invited Dave to begin with. So through mom, everybody uh, became acquainted with the group, and then became friends and members of this group all at the same time. So she was one of the, I guess, founding members of members. She. She was just somebody that had just started going there too. She was got it. She wasn't just somebody that happened to go and liked it and invited. Uh, again, I mean, we were eighteen years old. You know, uh, you you're you try a lot of things when you're eighteen. Uh, as far as new ideas to meet new people. How so, long? How long was it before you guys started dating or seeing each other or? Can you can you remember? No, we yeah. Well, we actually went. I don't know. Within a couple of months, we we went to the Museum of Art in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, and the whole day was a bust, and we pretty well that was our our the beginning and end of our dating at that point. <laughs> uh, and we became friends and. 
really didn't even uh, talk about or consider dating for probably a year after that. Really? Yeah. So what changed then? Uh, just time time went on and you get to know people and um oh now we're talking about 40 plus years ago now so uh, <laughs> clarity is not necessarily going to be <laughs> my strong point here but uh oh we were young idealistic people and and a lot of people within this group were getting married like it seemed like the thing to do to get married and have kids and and it just seemed like the well that just makes sense like uh and it seemed like it made sense for us to get married hmm. and, uh, for lack of a better uh better explanation hmm. uh, we uh again without without with with you asked me this question without having time to think it through and give you a better answer we're, we're talking about 46 years ago or whatever it was it's a honestly i i like the the candidness about it um i like i like you being able to search through your thoughts that's authentic um so you guys got married and that was over in chicago in the in the yeah we were uh uh in the greater Chicago land area, um, out in the suburbs. Uh, but that was where we, you know, had all met, but we had, um, we had at that point moved as a group. There was about a dozen of us that just a small fledging Christian organization. And we all moved to a little town called Bushnell, Illinois. And, uh, our goal was to have a Christian commune. We we're going to all live as Christians and we tool all our resources together and uh, live in. So nobody had want and everybody had what they needed. Hmm. At least that was the idea at the time. How, how many people moved there with you guys? Uh, well, again, I, it was me, Mom, uh, Dave Bowker, Julia Bowker, uh, Jeff Bobka, uh, Jerry, and uh, Nancy Ketter, and a guy named, oh, Julia and Dave's brother. His name's Buddy, Buddy Bowker. Uh, and a couple, a couple other people, a uh, guy named Chuck and Bruce. I think that was it. To like ten to twelve people. And the idea was yeah. to 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 let it grow a little bit over time. Yeah. To be like like a almost like a outreach, uh, hmm. a a, a Christian community up trying to show love to the rest of the community. Was it like a single big house or was it like a couple small houses or what was it like? It was a, it was an enormous house, old <laughs> house that was divided up into three apartments. Wow. So there were single men, the single women, and there was 
me and mom, and then Steve and Diane Hine and the married couples. Wow. That is a lot of people. And and it's easy to say let's all live together and love each other. It's a lot, way big different thing to <laughs> actually do it. How long were you guys there um, for? It was uh, probably a year and a half. Hmm. Uh, but then we, we were so young and immature. Uh, that's when, before it was over, we ended up moving to Michigan to become part of uh, Shiloh Fellowship there. And that was a in, more established, mature church. And that was in uh, Lansing? East Lansing. East Lansing. Yep. East Lansing, almost, uh, you could almost see the Statue of Sparties from the original church. Oh, man. The Statue right of down, Sparties. Uh, or Sparty, I should say. Uh, oh, Sparty on Michigan State yeah. campus. Oh, I thought you meant the old Sparty's dance saloon. <laughs> no, 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 no. That was that was the ghetto part. Oh, that's so ghetto over there. <laughs> well, that's cool. Um, and so you guys, how long was Shiloh around around uh, in in East Lansing before? I mean, because like, is that when like the Kesslers came along and the Hearts and all of them? Yep. Bartholomew's. We were all part of that church that was in East Lansing, uh, right on the corner of Ann and Divisions, really a pretty old church. It's still there. It's a, it's a beautiful old church. And uh, I know where that is, yeah. And then that's, uh, but then uh, they decided to sell that church and buy the church that Mount Hope Church moved out of. Uh, Mount Hope, the church with all the flags there in Lansing. Yeah. Mount Hope, the church that uh, New Covenant is, is in now used to be Mount Hope Church. So uh, I think they decided to become, really when the church was in East Lansing, it was kind of, uh, it was an East Lansing kind of a church. It was kind of a, wanted to be it was kind of a yuppie upscale church hmm. and the whole idea of moving into proper lansing was to become more of a more diverse church yeah what was like uh what was life like um for you in the early stages like in the early days of us kids and living on porter street um well life was very good um and of course, I was a young man still at at my trade, but learning it pretty quick. And you were doing concrete work, uh, uh, so I prospered uh, during that time. Uh, I went from being a just a laborer to a crew leader. To that's my first stint of running the company was uh, when I lived on Porter Street. There, when we lived on Porter, you built that house. And, Yep, uh, I did the trim work on the house. Uh, I uh, did the concrete work, uh, painted it, roofed it. Do you remember how much it cost to build that house back then? $60,000 was the price. 
So just for fun, you know, I've looked up the recent market value of the house. Have you done that? Any idea? Oh, you 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 mentioned it the other day. <laughs> Above three hundred. <laughs> I think it's around three hundred. Oh, yeah. I, so I could next time I'm see you, you can I'll turn around and kick me square in the butt. <laughs> but, you know. Well, I mean, n no way you've no you would have known thirty years later that the house would be worth that. But that's uh, that's crazy. Sixty thousand is what it cost, and that was eighty seven. You you built it, eighty six. I uh, oh, it was eighty. Let's see, when were you? Was it eighty three? You were born two. 82. I, I, oh, we, it was 80, 82 then, 83. Oh, wow. Because we moved, we moved in when you were a baby. Oh, wow. Okay. You played so, softball. Was that through the church as well? It, it was all, that was always a church league. I remember um, going to Patriarch Park and that being like some of the best memories I have as a kid is going to the park and watching you play softball. Well, and, and it's some of my favorite memories of, from that period in my life. Cause, uh, I mean, so much was good about my life at that point. I, I had a job that I very much enjoyed and I had a position of responsibility that allowed me to provide a decent living and you guys were at a fun age and I was still at an age where I could do stuff like play softball. I mean, I took it for granted. I, I didn't you know here I am at 65 and I mean, it's been 25 years since I've played football, you know? Yeah. And I, and at that point in my life, it was a big part of my life. I mean, every summer I played softball. So a lot of fun. So it was a fun time of life. But then we moved. We, it was Friday Friday nights. It was we yeah Patriarch Park, and they even turned the lights on. We yeah. we played double headers under the lights. <laughs> we, it was fun. We we moved out to California. Um, if life was as good as you say it was, why did like what 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 propelled us into the move out to California. Cause I was, I think that must've been like 87 or 88 or maybe a year later. 89. 89. 89. Um, well, uh, I can say that, uh, I went a guy that had worked on my crew had worked under me, him and his dad had bought a company in California an existing company, uh, the pool company. And it, since it was concrete related, he was the guy that called and offered me the job. Okay. And so I went out and, and checked the job out. They flew me out and I'll be honest. When I came back, I decided I didn't want to do it hmm. because, uh, starting a business and, and that's what this would be because they wanted to start a concrete end of the business. So, cause it was a pool refinishing business. So they wanted the concrete work to complement it. And they said that it would be, but I knew that starting a business took a lot of time personally and I didn't want to do it. 
I wanted personally, I felt like it was all I could do to be a dad, full-time dad. Hmm. So I got back and decided I didn't want to do it. And I obviously you don't know this, but your mom was the one that came down hard for the move, hmm. which, and, and I can remember clearly thinking she's never wanted to do anything our whole married life. There was, I could never get her to do anything. So, okay, you want to, you think it's a good idea to move? Let's move. Hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and she sold it to me like it's going to be really good for us to it'll be a new start for us we'll we'll be better there hmm. um i i decided to because in the end your mom came down hard for it were things uh, were things rough at home leading up to that point it was getting it was i was getting very unhappy hmm. in the marriage Hmm. I was getting very unhappy. Which is so weird. It's it's so weird to hear that because, I mean, as a kid, I I mean, obviously our side of uh, the experience of the childhood, I I don't remember obviously any of that. I had no no idea um, that uh, things were, you know, hard or bad at all. Um, I mean, you went out of your way. Um, I guess, I, I mean, I could say you and mom went out of your way to make sure that Things were so, um, I mean, great for us. Uh, so I had I had no idea that things were hard. Well, we never we never fought in front of you kids, and really we did not fight a lot. And some of that I regret because there's times I should have stood up and fought. Hmm. I, it, I, I was too much of whatever it takes to make peace. I just want peace. Hmm. Let's just get along. And okay, if 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 this is what's going to make for peace, let's do it. Because hmm. I am, I don't, I don't have it in me to want to battle all the time. Right. And that's and that's the way I felt, Mark. Hmm. And uh, so she finally wanted to do something big and grand, and and in your mind, you're like, well, if this is, if there's even a hope of things getting better that we might as well make the move. And, and your mom had made it real clear that she, she was not a happy person. Hmm. Uh, And, um, and so there was that part of me that, okay, well, if, if, if we can move and we can do better and she'll be happier, then that's worth it. Hmm. But I can, but I can remember real clearly uh, we were in California and, and then one weekend uh, mom got to, I just need you to take the kids. I've just got to have a break. And I remember thinking this is exactly the way it used to be in Michigan. Nothing has changed. We've been through all of this, all Hmm. of this effort. It's still the same. And so it would be in 1990, or 91 is when I decided that I would someday divorce your mother. Hmm. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, well, it, I, w- I was very angry at that point because uh, I felt that 
I had done everything I could. See, as a as a man, I was if I'm doing my job, my wife should be happy. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I had a good job and we we had built a house and I had a stay at home wife. Almost none of my friends had a stay at home wife. And uh, so the way I looked at it, you've got all of this and you're unhappy. You're rejecting me. Hmm. You've re- I've done everything I can to make you happy and you're unhappy. That means you've rejected my provision. Hmm. And I, and I was, I was very angry when I finally realized, wow, I've been rejected. That's why I took it. Yeah. I took it that I was rejected because I wasn't good enough. And I got very, very angry. Hmm. So. And then the job fell apart in California. Job fell apart. And it was also, they were going through one of their many drought cycles. Oh, man. So we had, so we had, we had got there and pool refinishing and was being discouraged because the water, there was a, water uh, shortage even worse uh, not as bad as now they're really in trouble now yeah but but so people were not you know they could but they would have to empty their swimming pools and then have to refill it <laughs> and then a lot of people are conscientious and they're like well i just can't in good conscience do that right now yeah so it that hurt the business some and this business that they had bought, they had bought it as a leverage buyout. Uh, you know what a leverage buyout is? Uh, not entirely. That's when a company, it's a, it's like you say, okay, I'll take this company over. And then in the next five years, I'll pay you $10,000 oh, a year. Gotcha. And then you take the money that the company makes and pay them the $10,000. $10, you really have nothing invested. Got it. What the damn... The problem is, is a lot of times companies, they, they spend all of their working capital just paying off that, uh, that loan, that agreement and the company goes belly up because it doesn't have any working capital. Got it. And so between that drought and the leverage buyout, uh, the, the, the company just, folded and ended up having to come back to Michigan with uh, pretty much feeling like my tail was dragging between my legs on that one. Hmm. It was a pretty, pretty humble experience. I, you know, I ran into Fred Long um, about a week and a half ago. Uh, he was selling his jerky at one of the um, local farmer's markets, and we randomly <laughs> started talking. And uh, he was telling me about how when we moved back to Michigan – we moved in with them for a real brief season. And I mean, we have five kids and you and mom and they have, they had at the time six kids and uh, Fred and Christy. And so that's eight and seven is 15 people. And I, is that a three bedroom house? (laughs) (laughs) Did you sleep? Did all four of you sleep in the King bed in their room? No, I, I know we didn't do that. You know, <laughs> they had like a water know. bed at the time. <laughs> there's, there's no way we did that, but I have no idea where we slept. To be honest with you, you can't, I look, can't remember. I, 
I don't I don't remember that season real well. I mean, I vaguely remember being there. Because, um, I mean, that was that was 91, right? When we moved back. So, I mean, I was nine years old, which definitely falls in that, you know, that, that time frame where I should remember. But that was, I think it was just so tumultuous. Like, there were so many changes going on. I, I mean, my brain just kind of blocked out a lot of it. Um, well, it was, and it was a, a trying time for me to come back and... Uh, going back to work eventually eventually at M&M right at the bottom well not not completely at the bottom but just as a crew leader not as a big shot of course there were plenty of guys that had axed the grind against me because <laughs> of from before so oh, it was a, it was a it was a trial by fire and actually I can say that uh, that was a season where I I ended up feeling like I had to take so much crap off so many people that I ended up starting to lift weights because in my mind, I thought this is the last time I'm taking a bunch of crap because I'm not a big guy. I, I mean, I, I might have to take crap, but the, um, they're going to have to, they're going to have to give an account for themselves. <laughs> I remember you lifting weights when we lived it at, uh, at the manor. And, and that's, I, there was guys I worked with that gave me so much grief that I finally thought, you know what? Uh, I'm not taking this grief anymore. And and I may not ever be able to stop it, but they'll think twice about it. Hmm. And that's exactly why I changed. <laughs> and that was it was it was anger. Anger fueled that, but it made quite a good change in my life health wise. Hmm. Made a it made a, a life difference. And actually I would say that it went on to affect you. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. Ben and uh, and, uh, so that really tough period in our lives and in my life ended up bearing really good fruit. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then we moved to uh Bostock street in Charlotte. Yeah. Yep. How did you find that house? Cause that was the Whitney's. It was, uh, because Sarah was friends with, um, wasn't Whitney, it was Adrian. Oh, yeah. They had become friends, and Dale owned that house, and it came up for rent, and that was why how we got that house. It was, we because, got it, it was pretty cheap. Well, it was very cheap, but there were no rentals available in Charlotte. You couldn't oh, find a house. To rent. Really? And, th- and that's why we were in the manor. That's yeah. exactly right. And, and only because... Sarah was friends. Did we get that house? Because it was basically who you knew, not because you go in the, the shopping guide. They'd have like rentals, like you look for a house for rent. Yeah. And you'd look and there'd be one or two houses for rent. And, and I mean, uh, you can imagine there's it, 15 people calling. Same as it is now, probably. Probably. Did I tell you that I saw that? that house in Bostwick was up for sale a few years back. Which are quite cheap, wasn't it? I think it was like $27,000. <laughs> Probably gone up it, it, now. Oh, it's, I'm sure it's well over 27 now. I mean, that, that house has some real problems and the driveway obviously is one of them. 
It was the Why driveway, but like the, the, the heating, the, well, I didn't even have HVAC. It just had heating and it was old radiator style heating. So I didn't even have like air ducts in the house. And that, that house was old. I loved it. I loved living in that house. Well, I, I have a lot of good memories from that house. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of my, a lot of my teenage years growing up, I mean, obviously we're out in that house, you know, climbing out of the window on onto that front roof and just the trampoline in the backyard and the pool that we had. Um, gosh, there were summers. Oh man. There, there were summers where I don't think I showered for like a month because I just swam in that pool every day, all day. It was it's like sun up to sundown, me and Nate Parrish just swimming in that pool and then playing basketball and man. So see, I, yeah, there was, uh, a, the great personal crisis of the divorce that happened at that house, but there were a lot of good memories for me at that house. Uh, and I, I even have, I mean, I still have good memories of living in Charlotte. Yeah. It was a good place to raise kids. Yeah. Um, I, I, I never regretted that part. Uh, you, mom. Uh, I, I, know, I know you guys loved going to Charlotte High School. Yeah, that was, especially Mr. Hyland and the, the choir, that was a, a lot of really great memories there. Really, really. And I, you, you picking almost all of the things that I did at cabaret every year. I thinking back, like that was you, like you were kind of the master behind the mastermind behind all of those, like the song, something like that. Tim McGraw, you picked that. Um, the yeah toast, that little skit that I did, that was you. Yeah. You, uh, that well. And also, uh, when you and Chris sang, uh, in my memories at Bob Seger, Martina McBride. Yep. In my memory, I'll see you somewhere tonight. Yep. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I, I just counted that as the same kind of thing you have. There are just some people that go, you know, what would be the perfect song right now? Yep. I always felt like I had that <laughs> knack, and I always felt like you had it too. Yeah, no, that that was great. I loved having you, like you being able to be involved in that was really cool. It was cool for me. I don't know if I was able to express that back then, but I mean, in a lot of senses that you were, you had, you are a part of those, you know, performances because you, you know, you had a hand in orchestrating it. So that was real cool. Um, well, and you know, I, I, I just, uh, that part of me identified, I mean, I, I loved singing still do, but, that 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 part of of me I saw in you guys too. We all shared that love. And uh so I mean that's that was part of the stuff that was the great part of this life that we got to live. Yeah. Now obviously like you and mom got divorced and uh, a lot of time passed. Um I think you guys divorced I think it was ninety seven. Um yeah. And, um, since then you moved down to Arizona, um, and 
Uh, were you in, in New Mexico for a little bit as well? Uh, a year, a, a year in New Mexico. Living on the same property as Benny. Yeah. Now all that, the house that I cleaned out, that's that mom was living in. Yeah. That's the house I bought. And, uh, ended up moving back here, um, to Michigan. It was probably what, man, five, six years ago. Five years ago. Five years ago. So it was right, right when Joe was born. Yeah, right when Joe so. was born. Um, and uh, um, mom got diagnosed with breast cancer in the fall of 2019. Um, what was that? What, what, what was that experience like for you? Um, well, I was. Uh, it was very shocking, uh, but I, but I, I guess I look back on it and I was certain that uh, at the time I felt your mom was very aware of her body, so she probably followed the symptoms. You know, probably noticed them early on. She was not it. I mean, she was always like that with her own physical health. Yeah. And um, and it was shocking because uh, she had been a healthy person pretty much all her life, uh, enjoyed health as have I. So uh, it was shocking, uh, but I felt like uh, with her background and the people she knew, I figured this was it was going to be a treatable situation. Yeah. I mean, she went through chemo. Um, I think she went through six rounds. I even have a picture on my phone um, of her ringing that bell, like her last chemo treatment um, and everything. I think that was April of 2020 at like the peak of the pandemic, um, which was so nerve wracking, Um, you know, watching like knowing her immune system is compromised and then having this virus going around and people are crazy. And I'm like, man, this is not the time to be battling cancer of all things. Um, that well, was the old saying, the old saying timing is everything. <laughs> uh, time bad, you, you just go, man, man. Yeah, that was, that was a lot. Um, but she, she came through and, um, she had some other small health issues, uh, coming out of that. Um, I remember, her telling me um, some of the lymph nodes under her arms after she had a uh, mastectomy on her right side, I believe. Um, yeah. um, she had some some issues with some lymph nodes under her arms uh, that were uh, swelling and infected, and they wouldn't uh, really just had a long. It was a long physical recovery uh, from a lot of the things that went on, um, but she seemed to turn that corner. Um, she seemed to come out of that. I mean, it was stage three breast cancer, which is serious, but not extremely serious. I mean, it's enough, um, to, you know, uh, be concerned. And I remember, I remember, I just remember wondering like what, what life was going to look like for, for mom after that. Um, because even even somebody who has completely beat uh, cancer, 
Um, the following six months is just regaining a normalcy back. Um, but I remember she was sleeping for hours and hours and hours a day and in pain. Um, and I think, I think a lot of that got better over time. Um, but she definitely like that normalcy never really returned for her. Well, it, 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 it didn't because I mean, literally, I remember talking to her February, the beginning of February of this year, when she had said uh, that she had been, her doctor had pronounced her cancer free. And, and literally that day she started to have new pain. Hmm. Uh, and I, I still, honestly, my conviction is Mark that, uh, she wanted that entire body PET scan. Yeah. And Medicare would not cover it. Jeez. Um, if I think the cancer was already throughout her body, because there's no way that you go from a pronounced of your cancer free February, March, April, we're talking about death. Yeah, it was about, uh, I think from the time that she found that bump on the back of her head, until the day she passed was just over 10 weeks. So, uh, there's, there's no way that she went cancer free to dead in 10 weeks. Yeah. That somehow they were only looking at the breast. And I think that has to do with what Medicare will pay for, to be honest. Well, I'm I mean, just guessing. It's, it's no secret that our, medical system in in uh in the united states is a business and the treatment goes to the highest paying customers and medicare is on the bottom of that list you know what it is it is because they only pay 70 percent, and then that's of what they say is a reasonable charge yeah if they say so uh but the real the real the real bad, who knows who the bad, real bad person was, but there was a time when doctors would be compensated for helping people, but people didn't become doctors to get rich. They became doctors to help, yeah, uh, help people. And often, you see the old movies where the doctor would do a house call and oh, have yeah. his bag, and and poor people might give him. Here's some food. We don't have anything else. But yeah. A cow or a sheep or something. That, but the advent of in, in uh, health insurance, Mark, once health insurance came along and you could start paying a premium, so then if really high costs came along, you could still pay for it. And then that was the beginning of the end. So then now the hospitals know they can continue to press their prices up the doctors up everything went up once health insurance became part of of our life and now everybody wants to make enough money just so they can pay for health insurance yeah that's where we've got to so doctors and medical industry is big business yeah that's, it is that's and what they are and i, and, I think uh, sadly in our case, we saw the real bad side of that coin, the the worst side of it, actually. 
Um, at what point did you um, decide to go down? Because I think we all realized pretty quickly how serious her condition was. I mean, she found that bump on the back of her head on February 6th. That's the one that I th think she got the MRI of her head. And her health was deteriorating daily after that. Um, and I think it was about five weeks later, she was taken into the hospital at the beginning of April. Um, but it was, yeah, I think at the beginning of April is when she was medevaced over to Lubbock, Texas. Um, yep. at what point did you make the decision to go down? Because we all realized how serious it was, but I mean, none of us could, could make it like we couldn't pick up our, uh, we couldn't pick anything up and go, um, pick up our whole lives. Um, you know, there's Ben is out in Hawaii, um, me, Sarah, and Jay are all here in Lansing, or uh, in Michigan. Um, but to fly down to New Mexico or to Texas, to Lubbock, Texas, is just, it was unfeasible at the time. And you picked up everything and drove down. Um, at what point did you, was that apparent that that was something you needed to do? Well, actually, when I picked up and went down, that was just maybe a day or two before I actually left. But but to back up, I remember when they first started talking that she might need help, someone to care for her once she returned home. That's when I first considered and then decided I would go to help her. But, but actually, once they said she couldn't go back home, I, at first I thought, well, she can't, she's going to be in hospice. Uh, there's no need for me to go. But then almost immediately, uh, I began to consider what was it like to be her and be alone and having a death sentence and to go through it alone. And I... I mean, it was a matter of just a little time, and I realized I got to go. I can't, I, I can't, I couldn't have lived with myself uh, without being very angry with myself that I didn't help when I knew I could, and I knew how much it affected you and your siblings. Uh, I, uh, at the memorial service, I guess I, I thought I came up with it then that I, I did what love required of me. Um, that's the best way I could describe it. And, and real love, not the mushy, uh, blubbery emotion that I'm talking about, but real love, action, and doing things for people because it will benefit them. Yeah. And that's real love. And in the end, it benefited me greatly. I, I mean, I, I couldn't believe how, how much good it did for me. But 
uh, I know that the amount of peace it brought to uh, you and and your siblings, uh, and I didn't even realize that when I made the decision to go. It was later that I saw that how it, how good it was for her and for all of you and for me to be there. It was by far the most beautiful thing I have most most selfless thing I've ever witnessed um, it's 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 a testament of who you are as a person and who you are as a man and who you are as a father and um, to show up for someone um, in literally the very last days because you love us and you love her and you love yourself and because that's what love requires that is um, I mean that is a true testament of who you are as a person and um, I mean I, I know I speak on behalf of all of us and I mean thank you for doing that that is I mean it's something that now we have that you could have that you were the extended hands when we couldn't be there and um, we're forever forever thankful and grateful for that well I uh, it was my joy to to do that for you and your siblings it was it was my privilege had the privilege of being able to be an example of expressing love and uh, I'm grateful to God for the opportunity to do that so thank you for that wonderful compliment uh, I can tell you that uh, there's terms of here on in this life uh, honestly what you kids think of me is the most important thing uh, I can uh, put my finger on I desperately have always wanted to be a dad that my kids would go yeah that, that was my dad and I'm proud to be his child I don't think there was a moment where I've been more proud well, thank you thank you son I love you daddy well I can't imagine how much I love you son
uh, just just the fact that I know that she raised you guys up really, really um, not professional and, and just with lots of love and uh, just uh, how you guys were raised with lots of love and uh, affection and, and knowing what's, what was, you know, with the rights and wrongs and all that and just knowing that she was there for you and um, knowing all that and that's the fact that, you know, she's my sister and I'm uh, um, just um, knowing that um, I think a lot of it too was, was really cool that she was able to keep the music feel, that she, which I know like you you enjoy and I enjoy and she still had played guitar for so long and that was always kind of cool knowing that. And, um, but yeah, um, to remember her with that and just remembering that um, uh, it was probably uh, something that I wish I could have seen her more. It's always tougher as you get older. Um, but. Um, but overall, you know, she's in my heart, and uh, I love her just the same as you guys do. So what's one thing you remember most about my mom, your sister? Oh, probably Christmas mornings, because Christmas mornings were a time when the whole family would be together. And since Karen was five years older than me, she was off and off doing her own thing with her friends, you know, that kind of thing. But Christmas morning was a time for the family. And I just remember the whole family and Karen and then the boys and everybody being around and just ripping presents and, and paper and packaging flying in all directions and just, you know, kind of relaxing after the, the, the gift unwrappings and everything like that. It was, it was really special. Christmas mornings were probably the most special time with, with Karen and the whole family, you know. Yeah. But, uh, but like the story I told before about going to visit Mr. Scalise, my sixth grade teacher, because she had Mr. Scalise five years before I did. And I almost flunked the fifth grade. I came within a whisker <laughs> of flunking the fifth grade. And my mom went to the school and said, look, Karen really liked Mr. Scalise. He was a, one of her favorite teachers of all time. Can you put Tom in Mr. Scalise's class? And they said, yeah, okay, we can do that. And Mr. Scalise was good. He was good. He straightened me out. He got me on the path and said, hey, you know, you got to you got to get this together. Otherwise, you know, we're not going to get in the seventh grade. And like I said, seventh grade started. She was a senior. We went back. I went back and there she was visiting Mr. Scalise mm. unplanned, you know, and it was just great to that we shared, you know, a good teacher. It was, it was nice to share yeah. a good teacher. You know, but What's something that you're uh, you're thankful for when it comes to her? Oh, I'm just thankful that she was my sister. I'm just thankful that I had, had her as a sister to, you know, to be with her. You know, like I say, it, it, she was older than me, so it was it was hard to share things because she was so much older and she was a girl. So it didn't seem, seem like we have a lot of things in common. But I think my favorite thankfulness times were visiting you guys on Bostwick because then, you know, you guys were young, you were kids, you were running around, there was a lot of energy. Um, Those memories are so great. Yeah, yeah, so and just being with you, you, your dad and your mom and all you guys. And, yeah, I was really thankful to, to be able to share those times on Bostwick with you guys, everybody. So, so I know you shared a lot of stories tonight about... I never got started. <laughs> What's something that stands... There were some I wouldn't share. <laughs> What's something about my mom that you really treasured the most? Especially maybe... The last year, the last two years. Reconciliation. Mm. Um, 
forgiveness and reconciliation. Every family has its ups and downs. And if you don't forgive the family member and they pass away, whether it's quickly or if it's a long, drawn-out thing or if it happens under your nose, you're going to live with it. So um, reconciliation and forgiveness. Just do it now. Do it now. And, and the weight will uh, disappear from your shoulders and your heart really quick. And, I mean, it's just a big... Like play the big, bigger person. Every family has these ups and downs, terrible things that go on. You know, um, that that that'd be in the last recent years. Yes, that would that would be it. Because whoever doesn't forgive has to live with it. Um, that, I mean, they have to live with that. As far as the early days, she was uh, a protector of mine, not against kids in the neighborhood so much, but against, you know, some pretty tough parental authority that was not um, not very parental sometimes. <laughs> and so she would take me aside um, as a young kid and, and reassure me and, and protect me from, you know, if, if, the, if uh, my dad was getting out of hand, you know, that kind of thing. That, that was big, that was big. And also uh, encouraging me as a musician and getting me going, lighting the fuse, you know. And um, you know, those, those are those are just monstrous things. Those are things that come to mind right away. But I haven't sat down with pictures that really brings it out of you, the memories. And I haven't even looked at pictures. I haven't really been able to. I haven't been able to dig deep into all of it yet because I live in denial of it. I've lived in denial of her passing. I just have. I, I can't erase her name from my phone. I can't do it. It'll happen, but it's going to be a while. You know? But that's, that's a common thing. You, don't, you just can't scratch certain things out. Like there it is. There's oh, there's a number. I'm gonna call her. She's gonna call me. But no, it's not gonna not gonna be. So that's difficult. But she will be missed.